There's global outrage after Myanmar executed four pro-democracy prisoners. Its military junta says it was lawful. But can international pressure stop such killings? And what are the chances of Myanmar returning to democracy? I'm Bernard Smith, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests. Minka Nyhaus is a freelance journalist and author. She knew two of the activists who were executed, Ko Jimmy and Zaya Tor, and she's covered their journey extensively. In Geneva, we have Wei Nin, a campaigns officer at Burma Campaign UK and daughter of Maya Ai, one of the 88 generation student leaders. And in Skagen, Denmark, we have Helen Maria Kayed, a senior researcher focusing on justice and security in Myanmar at the Danish Institute for International Studies. A warm welcome to you all. A very difficult subject for us today. Um, first of all, Minka, are you surprised that the army went ahead with these executions? Well, I was very concerned that this time they would be very serious about it, even though death sentences haven't been carried out for the last 30 years. But there were already before the execution, there were rumors and uh, there was news being circulated deliberately that it was going to happen or had happened already that seemed to be like a sort of testing the waters for what the reaction would be. Um, and then I came especially concerned when I heard that the family, some of the family members had been given the, a chance to, even though it was an online meeting, to have an encounter with um, the prisoners, because that is an indication that an execution is, is about to be mm -hmm. implemented, to be carried out. Okay. Wayne, are you surprised that uh, this has happened, these executions were carried out? Well, uh, it's very heartbreaking. Uh, we kept thinking they wouldn't do it because it's uh, not in the military interest to carry out the execution after, uh, you know, decades of not having done so. But uh, it, this is a sign that the military is very desperate because even over a year of the attempted coup, because I'm saying attempted coup because they haven't been able to consolidate power. They haven't been able to uh, control the general population who've been standing up against the military coup. So this is the sign of desperation. And they're trying to use fear factor to stop a revolution on the ground. And But in reality, it has an opposite effect. Alan Marie, I see you nodding away there. Is, is this a sign of desperation from the military? I very much agree. I think from the perspective of the UNTA itself, it, it, it's part of instilling increasing fear and terror in the population, warning the resistance fighters that they will go uh, as far as you know they can uh, to stop the resistance and they don't bend to any international pressure. But I'm very, very in agreement that it is a sign of weakness, both on the battlefield in terms of territorial control, but also in terms of not really being able to run the state apparatus, the economy is in ruins. And what we've been researching over the past year or so is also how soldiers within the ranks of the military itself are increasingly demoralized. There's a growing fatigue. We see a gradual increase of defectors over this past year as well. So even within its own ranks, there are weaknesses and, 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 and a sense of chaos. Minka, you, you've 30 years covering Myanmar. Do you uh, ag agree with that? Do you see this as a sense of, uh, of weakness for the first time of uh, executions in 30-odd in years? 
Yeah, I, I certainly, I think when the military seized power on the 1st of February 2021, they expected that they would get back control uh, pretty easily by using brutal force as they have done for decades. And the complete opposite is what we are seeing now. After months of peaceful protests and, and, and very brutal violence by the security forces, it hasn't worked. So there are still daily flash mobs, protests, large amounts of people are still on strike. And there are militant groups now operating in various parts of the country, as well as the several armies of the ethnic groups who have been fighting for more autonomy and equal rights in, a, in a, what they hope to be a federal state. So the military really is finding itself in uncharted waters here and has to fight on so many fronts nowadays. And I, th I think that that is also where there is an element of anger and revenge on those four people who have been executed, that it wasn't only meant to terrorize uh, the population, but it was also an, an expression of revenge, as far as I see it. Uh, and Minka, you knew Zaya Tor and Co. Jimmy and their families. Can you just tell me a little bit about them? Yeah, I wish we had the whole programme to talk about them, of course. There's so much to say. Um, both of them are very highly respected uh, activists and, and, and veterans. Let me start with Cole Jimmy, who came to fame in the 1988 protests against the regime. He is a member of the 88th generation. Um, he was very soon after this process already arrested and he spent between uh, his first arrest and, and another release in 2012 almost 20 years in jail. But every single time that he came out of jail, he showed his commitment. He was uh, still uh, advocating um, democracy, human rights and, and, and a freer country. And um, he also was known for doing a lot of social activities to address the ills in the society. He would often be seen, for example, um, when, when there were uh, crises of internally displaced people, he would do humanitarian work there. He was also very well known. He, and Jose and Atoll is about 10 years younger than the 53-year-old called Jimmy. He came to fame as um, bringing out, releasing the first hip-hop album, which really galvanized a generation that was deprived of freedom and hunger for, uh, for a, a better life and, and, and less poverty. Okay. And then he decided it wasn't enough what he did, and, and he, he um, established an underground youth movement called Generation Wave. He was in prison then, and upon his relief in 2011, he joined the NLD okay. of yeah, the party of Fang San Suu Kyi. All right. And I should also mention Falam Yu Ong and Ong Torazor, the other two men who were executed as well. Um, Wine in. Uh, we heard mention there from Minka of the flash mobs that have been in, uh, that have been takes incredible ba bravery to do that. But is there any way really to hold Myanmar's military accountable for all of this? 
Well, uh, yes. Uh, first of all, you know, uh, the, we have been telling the international community to refer Burma to the International Criminal Court and even countries who are uh, supposedly interested in human rights like the UK and the US, they are very hesitant to do so. And we have a case going on uh, for Rohingya genocide at the ICJ and countries like the Britain can join that uh, is a part of the accountability process for the military. because. We believe, uh, after all, the, uh, the international community helped create the cycle of impunity uh, felt by the Burmese military because it's been decades they've been getting away with human rights violations, genocide against the Rohingya. And if they get away with this state execution, uh, the worry is that they will continue to execute uh, 90 others political prisoners who are on death row. And we don't want that because... All of these people, they were wrongfully accused and they were tried without a proper judicial process okay. and they shouldn't be in jail, let alone on death row. Helen Marie, in terms of holding the military accountable, ASEAN has been totally ineffective here, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's really not... Its strategy of attempting to engage the military has not worked at all, has it? Well, I mean, its own chair, the, the Cambodian uh, Hun Sen, he, he actually told uh, the commander-in-chief Myanmar Line not to carry through these executions. And we've seen a statement coming out today of disappointment. I think it's, it's, it's a clear sign that uh, the five-point statement that was, or consensus that was agreed upon in April last year that was mentioned earlier, has simply not been followed by the military junta. I mean, this idea that they would ask and would bring together the different parties, including Aung San Suu Kyi, who is now uh, behind bars, has simply not worked. I mean, and people uh, on the ground in Myanmar have consistently said that every time ASEAN comes and visits Myanmar, it's, it's, it just legitimizes the junta. It's part of what they fear, a form of normalization of the situation of the military junta uh, in power. And it plans to hold elections in 2023. And this could be part of that normalization. So it's really, really important that the international community steps up broadly. It gave the mandate to ASEAN, uh, the UN, the EU and others to do this. But uh, at the moment, it it's just not uh, enough. And also in the UN Security Council, what's happening now is that China and Russia uh, are protecting the military junta, if, if not directly, then at least indirectly. Um, so there is a need to find another course uh, internationally uh, to actually show action rather than just uh, words. Wynin, uh, back to you on that. I mean, uh, uh, the, the Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen, he's been, uh, he was, been humiliated, really, hasn't he? Because he was the one... He had resisted condemnation of Burma, while maybe Singapore, the Philippines, Malaysia and Indonesia had been outspoken. He resisted, tried to persuade the junta not to carry out the executions, and they've just ignored him. Yes, and I hope, uh, you know, usually ASEAN uh, used the uh, um, policy of non-interference, but I hope this is a lesson for the ASEAN that the military is not something you want to engage in, because since the uh, coup started, the military has shown over and over again that they don't really care about uh, any international law, international agreement. They continue killing and arresting people on the ground. And of course, these four executions are the one that we know of and is well-known uh, execution. But 
uh, there are so many unlawful killing happening in integration center, detention centers. So these things are happening every day. And what kind of a military would be interested in engagement uh, while they continue committing human rights violations? So I hope this is a lesson for ASEAN that it's time for uh, proper and effective action rather than going along with the military and hoping to engage and uh, make them respect about human rights because it will never happen. But, Minka, from your experience in Myanmar, do you see anything that ASEAN could do that would make the military uh, change its plan, would make the military return to democracy? Well, I think ASEAN uh, used to have this policy of considering the situations in countries' internal affairs, but at the same time, there is some leverage here it, it, if ASEAN can have the political will, because it was really a very important step for Myanmar to become a member of ASEAN. And, and ASEAN is not happy to have a black sheep in its middle and every single international gathering. Surely they will be called up on what they are going to do about uh, the situation in Myanmar. So it, it all has to do with the political will. And, and at the same time, they can also do a lot more to engage with the various groups uh, that now form the opposition. And for example, the government of national uh, unity that has been established by amongst others, elected members uh, of parliament who have been dismissed by the military. So there are definitely more venues to be explored than what has been done so far. And I think the military regime has been very aware also that the international community is busy with the situation in the Ukraine and all eyes are okay. on, on Russia as well. And, and that they, they are trying to get to see how far they will get away with this incredible, um, okay. brutal act. Helen Maria, uh, tell us, uh, help us understand a little bit about the People's Defence Forces now. How effective are they and how effective could they be? It's a, it's a hard question to answer, but we know that there's around 400 uh, of the People's Defence Forces. And what's very important to recognise here, as was mentioned briefly earlier, is that in the past, before the coup, the main battles or uh, resistance against the military was in the ethnic border areas. But we also see very, very strong People's Defence Forces in Burmese, Bur Bama majority areas, uh, in Sakai and Magway and other regions. And this makes a huge difference from previously uh, in Myanmar's history of, of conflict. And this could make a, a huge difference from before because the military has to fight on so many fronts. And that's also why what I said earlier is that its combat units are now getting tired out. They don't get any rest. They are losing uh, belief in what they're actually fighting for, because we're talking about a broad sector of the population resisting the military amongst the majority population where most of the soldiers are from. So I think that by fighting on all these fronts at the same time, and uh, including in, in alliances with the ethnic armed organizations that have been fighting the military, that has experienced fighting the military for decades, it could make a huge difference. And we're already seeing it these factions that are happening from the military that we've been looking at. And uh, Wayne, in this, these People's Defence Forces came out of the peaceful protesters that erupted, that started after the coup uh, last year. They claim to control more than 50% of Myanmar's territory. Is that, is that a realistic uh, calculation? 
Well, we've seen that the People Defence uh, Forces uh, are growing uh, in Burma because uh, even like, you know, um, they came out of the peaceful protest because they felt this was the only way to defend themselves and also uh, attack the uh, military on the ground. And, of course, the military has much more advanced uh, technology. And when it comes to weapons, they have much more uh, advanced weapons as well. So what we've seen is that on the ground, uh, people, defense forces and the military can, uh, you know, the military is losing. But uh, on the air uh, fighter jets uh, front, then military is using fighter jets to bomb civilians and ethnic areas. And that's why, you know, part of um, or human rights uh, activists are calling for sanctions on aviation fuel, because if we stop supplying the aviation fuel to Burma, then they won't be able to fly these fighter jets to bomb uh, people in ethnic area, as well as people who are uh, operating people defense forces in uh, on the ground. Minka, do you see too much um, store put in the strength of the People's Defence Forces? Are they really any uh, match for the Chinese supp arms-supplied Myanmar army? Well, this is not only about military strength as such. It's the fact that there are armed groups mm -hmm. in various parts of the countries, including very close or even in urban areas, that give the military regime a sense of insecurity and fear. And that is quite unprecedented in, in, in recent history. And so um, when you speak to the PDF, they will tell you that uh, what they lack is, is weapons. But the, the morale all in all is, is quite high. And, and that is certainly also a factor that needs to be taken into account. When in... We often hear this call for the PDF, the People's Defence Forces, they're short of weapons. Should an outside organisation or country be arming the PDF? Well, this is not... I mean, a lot of people uh, on the ground, especially uh, PDF, they are uh, asking for arms, but also they are asking for uh, humanitarians' uh, help as well, because most of them don't have any funding for uh, food and other essentials, uh, let alone arms. So, uh, of course, the, uh, Burma is not only facing a human rights problem, but we are also facing a huge uh, humanitarian crisis in the country. So I think uh, international community and outside organizations should be helping uh, people inside the country and including, uh, you know, countries like ASEAN, they can uh, allow the cross-border aid from Thai Burma border so that people in Burma can live uh, and they have food and other ascensions to, uh, essentials to uh, operate. I think it's very important to get support from the international community. Helen Maria, just very quickly from you, how do you see inside Myanmar the, the best way to combat uh, the junta there? The best way is by far to unite the forces against the military junta. I mean, we have seen uh, forms of unification we haven't seen historically before in Myanmar, but there are also challenges. There are also differences amongst those resisting the military junta. So if people can stand together and the ethnic armed organization can join hands with the people's defense forces and also the political entities, from the ethnic minorities and the national unity government, I think that is definitely the best way forward seen from inside uh, Myanmar. And of course, this should be supported by us from the outside as well. All right, thank you very much. We are 
unfortunately out of time. But thanks to our guests, to Minka Niehaus, to Wei Nin and Helen Maria Kayed. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohamed Alaishi, Usama Aloni, Fungi Noyan and Jimmy Getahun. Studio sound was by Yasser Amani. The programme was edited by Hatim Chabal, Lynn Noyan and Joe DeFreyas. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Wednesday. Wednesday.